I want you to imagine the scene with me. As Jesus comes in to Jerusalem on Sunday, and all of the Galilean pilgrims coming in and they're waving their palm branches and laying them down and laying their cloaks down, shouting, Hosanna! 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 Jesus riding in on a donkey above all of the rest of the crowd. Shockwaves, like an earthquake, go all sweeping across the city. All of Judea, all of Jerusalem wondering the stir of this prophet of Nazareth, this prophet from Galilee. What is this all about? Who does this guy think he is? What is the story? You can imagine that as, head hit, as heads hit pillows that night, there was a restlessness in Judea. There was, a, there was a restlessness, especially among those who were, who were in charge of the temple, especially among those who were in charge of order, especially among those who were used to being in control of things. Was well, Monday dawned, not much happened that would calm those, those, restless, those restless leaders. Weakened and, and, and tired from the journey from Galilee, Jesus wakes up with his disciples and hungry. They go in a, and they see a tree, a fig tree covered in leaves only to discover that just like the temple, which is so beautiful on the outside, covered like a tree with leaves on the outside, but fruitless on the inside. This beautiful fig tree is covered in leaves but bears no fruit and Jesus curses it foreshadowing his events that day at the temple. Jesus goes into the temple, into the Gentile court on the outer perimeter of the temple, and it is bustling, it is thronging with people, and there are, there are merchants there and money changers there, and Jesus, as though one that has gone crazy, becomes indignant with righteous anger, righteous indignation, and begins flipping tables as coins ping across the cobblestone and opening up the cages, and birds are flying, and animals are running and people are angry and unrest is stirring. Children begin crying out to Jesus. As Jesus is healing the lame and, and healing the blind, the, the very same one that is in anger, flipping tables, is in kindness, receiving the lame, lame and receiving the blind. And children begin to repeat the praises from the day before. Hosanna! 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 And it says that the scribes and the chief priests began to be filled with a murderous indignation, an anger that, that permeates the very fiber of who they are, uh, an, an anger that begins to permeate throughout the Sanhedrin, an anger that permeates the entirety of the temple leadership. And so we know that a confrontation is coming. We know that a confrontation is coming. We know that at some point there is going to be a, a, a meeting, a, there is going to be a clash, there is going to be an approach by those that have been so, so utterly violated in their own minds by this man from Galilee because in their minds, who in the world does he think he is? 
Well, as we come to our text in Matthew 21 this morning, we're going to see the first of these great, these great conflicts, the first of these confrontations. So if you would, turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, as we are now on Tuesday of Passion Week. Tuesday of Passion Week. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to begin in verse 23. Would you stand with me in the honor and reverence of reading God's word together? Matthew chapter 21, we're going to begin in verse 23. We'll read through verse 27. God's inerrant and all-sufficient word says, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? For, but if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. Now you might think that after Jesus has caused such an uprising in the temple, such an uproar in Jerusalem on Sunday and Monday, that on Tuesday Jesus would be content to lay low a bit. You might think that having come in to such fanfare on Sunday, uh, clearly fulfilling the, prophecy, the messianic prophecy of Zechariah 9, coming in, causing what the Bible describes as like being like an earthquake across Judea on Sunday, then coming in on, on Monday and flipping over tables and driving out money changers and declaring it a den of robbers and, and creating a, a murderous anger in the hearts of of, of the temple leaders, like you, you might think that by Tuesday, Jesus might say, you know what, I think I'm going to have breakfast in bed and sleep in a bit, right? Like, like you might think that by Tuesday, Jesus is going to hang out at the Holiday Inn for a while. But that's not what we see in the ministry of Jesus, is it? That's not what we see at all in the ministry of Jesus. That when Tuesday comes, that Jesus doesn't take a personal day, that Jesus doesn't take an off day, he doesn't take a personal retreat day or a Sabbath day. Jesus doesn't hang out at the Holiday Inn Express that day. Jesus doesn't have a Netflix day. Now, what do we see in the life of Jesus? Jesus goes right back to the scene of the uproar. Jesus goes right back to the scene of the temple where he has just flipped over the money-changing tables. And Jesus doesn't just go back to the scene as, as a, another pilgrim. He doesn't just go back to the scene as another worshiper. Jesus goes back to the Gentile court where he has just called them all, a he has just declared it as a den of robbers, where he has just ran out all of the money changers and the merchants, and he is teaching there. He is teaching there. Now, the book of Matthew has made it very clear that when Jesus taught, Jesus taught with an authority that was so great that it was clear that it was from heaven, that it was clear that it was unlike anything else that the scribes had ever done. It was clear, it was unlike any of the other rabbis that were to be found in all of Jerusalem. 
And so when Jesus taught, he gathered a crowd. People wanted to come and hear this authoritative rabbi speak. And so you can imagine that during the Passover, a time in which the temple was especially full, that as Jesus was teaching in the midst of the temple, a great crowd of people had begun to, to, to teach. Jesus was not exactly being subtle. Jesus was not exactly being quiet. No, Jesus was not backing down. Jesus was not quieting down. Jesus was not laying down. Jesus was pressing on. Jesus was pushing on. And so again, we see that the time of provocation is upon us. The time of provocation is upon us. Jesus will not eat his way to the cross. The cross will not surprise Jesus. Jesus will provoke the enemies. He will provoke the temple leaders. He will provoke their murderous anger. He will reveal the wickedness of their hearts so that he will ultimately go to the cross and lay down his own life. But brothers and sisters here, do we not see the courage of our Savior? Do we not see the courage of our Savior? Do we not see the courage of Jesus? That he doesn't try to be hidden. He doesn't try to back down. That Jesus is not afraid of what they can do to him. He is not afraid of what they threaten him with. He is not fearful of all the things hanging over their head, over his head. He is not afraid of their murderous anger or their threats or all of the things that they're saying. Jesus instead wakes up Tuesday morning and he goes right back to the temple. He goes right back to, to, to ground zero. He goes right back to the scene in which he had flipped over the tables. And right there, he continues to declare, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come. The Son of God has come. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man shall come to the Father except through me. I want you to imagine what this would be like in our day. Billy Graham, a great hero of the faith, a great unifier of the faith, just passed away a couple of weeks ago. I don't know that in our lifetime we will ever know of a Christian preacher that is more universally known than Billy Graham. And, and well done, he is a hero of mine. So I want you to imagine that in our day, the, that the preacher, a preacher of prominence, that, is, that would be somewhat like, like what Jesus would have been in Jerusalem, Billy Graham's like as close as we've got. And so I want you to imagine that if you were to go to, uh, to Sung Il Kim Square in North Korea, that's the main square in North Korea, in the capital of North Korea. North Korea is the most persecuted country for Christians in the world, in the globe, on the globe, okay? And I want you to imagine that Billy Graham were to go there or someone like Billy Graham were to go there, and I'm not saying they should do this, but they were to go there and they were to, to preach, and they were to preach and preach and preach. And they were to preach that Jesus Christ is the true God. And they were to preach that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And they were to stand up with a megaphone. And they were to preach and preach and preach and preach. And they were to know without a shadow of a doubt, without one inkling of doubt, that in their preaching, that, the, that their preaching would end, their preaching would be finished only when they would be arrested and sentenced to a work camp where they would work 15 hours a day in freezing conditions 
where they would lose limbs to frostbite, lifting rocks on meager rations, but they would lose their minds first to insanity and then ultimately to death. Because brothers and sisters, we have brothers and sisters that are facing this right now. Right now. What every single one of us would, do, would say is what courage. And praise God, right? Praise God. You understand that is the example of Christ here in the temple. That is the example of Christ in the temple. That is the standard of Christ in the temple. That is the courage that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the man God, is demonstrating in the temple as he goes back to the very place in which he knows will lead to his ultimate demise. But Jesus Christ will not be silenced. Jesus Christ will not back down. No, because Jesus Christ is the kingdom come, the Son of God, the hope of man, the Savior of you and I. Do you know what disciples of Jesus have the responsibility to do? To live out the courage of Christ in this world. The disciples would go on to the book of Acts and you have to believe that having followed Jesus into the temp temple that the picture would come into their minds. You know they woke up on that Tuesday thinking, Jesus, can we go anywhere but there? Can we go anywhere but there? Jesus, can we go into Jerusalem? Maybe you want to go and hang out with some relatives. Let's, let's go and check out, see some of the sights. Maybe go get a bite to eat. Let's do anything, Jesus, but go to the temple. But Jesus says, no, my Father has said it, and I will do it. We will obey, even at cost. We have a sermon to preach. We have a mission to accomplish. We have a message to advance, and our Father has said it. We will obey obey it because that is the mission at hand. Brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to be the church of Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like to be the church of Jesus Christ. In the face of great tribulation, in the face of great distress, in the face of great famine, in the face of great difficulty, in the face of great hardship, in the face of great oppression, in the face of great odds, in the face of great opposition, it is to press on in the courage of Jesus Christ. It is to press on with the mission of Jesus Christ. It is to have the word of God. It is to have the mission of Christ. It is to have the call of God and to say, no, God has said it and I will do it. God has commanded me and I will go. But maybe you're saying, but how? How? This is the Son of God. I am not. Oh, but you are. You are, you see. The very same Spirit of God that was in Christ is in you. Yes. It is in you. The same Spirit that gave Jesus the courage in the garden. The same Spirit that gave Jesus the courage in the temple to speak and to teach. The same Spirit is that if you have repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ, He indwells you, brothers and sisters. He indwells you. Romans chapter 8 says all those who, are, who, are, who follow the Spirit, who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom you will cry, Abba, Father. You have the spirit of Christ in you. You have the spirit of courage in you. You have the spirit of victory in you. You have the spirit of power in you. So church, be courageous. 
be courageous. Not because you are able, because Christ is able. Be courageous, not because you are strong, but in fact, because you are weak and Christ will work powerfully through weak people. Some of you, God is calling you to start work, uh, Bible studies at work and you're afraid. Who wouldn't be? In this climate, in the climate that we're working in and we're living in, who wouldn't be? But be courageous. The Spirit of Christ is in you. The courageous Christ, He is in you. But some of you, the Lord is calling you to go on a mission trip this year, and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to afford it. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Like, I don't even know how to say my name in public. And you want me to go and, like, talk about Jesus? Do it. Be courageous. Be courageous because the Spirit of Christ is in you. The Spirit of Christ is in you. Some of you, you're in high school, and man, stuff's coming up at lunch, stuff's coming up in the locker room or whatever, and you can feel the Spirit of God, and He's prompting, man, you need to say something. You need to say something, and you know you need to say something, but you find yourself getting timid, and you find yourself cowering down, and you find yourself backing down. Because you're like, I just don't know if I got, I, I'm weak. I'm weak. I don't have answers. I don't have solutions. I don't know. I don't know all the stuff. Look, speak up. Speak up. Even if it feels broken, even if it feels like a jumbled mess in your mind, speak up because the spirit of Christ is in you and he can do far more than you're able to. Brothers and sisters, Let's resolve, not because we're a great church, but because our God is a great God, not because we're a mighty church, but because Christ is a strong and courageous Christ, that we will be a courageous church together filled with the Spirit of Christ. So they come to Jesus, and the time of confrontation is finally here. The time that we've kind of been anticipating for some period is finally upon us, and they come to Jesus and they ask him, by whose authority are you doing all of this? Where did you get the authority to come and to teach here in the temple complex? See, Jesus didn't have a seminary degree, okay? Jesus didn't go through the traditional means of being trained and qualified as a rabbi. And so, 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 so Jesus wasn't technically qualified to be in the temple complex, even though at 12 years old, all of the other leaders of the temple sat and listened to him teach and were awestruck by all the things that he knew. He had not went through the traditional means. And then you, you, you factor in that just the day before he'd been there, he'd been flipping tables and healing people and eliminating obstacles and allowing people to worship the Lord that had not worshiped the Lord in years, maybe ever. And they come to Jesus and they say, by what authority are you doing all of this? Who gave you this authority? And in our, in our language, uh, we might ask it this way. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You see, they weren't coming to Jesus actually trying to discover the, the uh, root of his authority. By the way they're asking this question, they're showing already that they have rejected his authority. They're showing on the front end that they have rejected it already. They're, they're coming in offense. They're coming angry. And they're coming saying, who is it that you think you are getting off, coming to our temple? 
coming to, to our place where we're in charge, where we are the authority, where we are the teachers, where we are the preachers and preaching and teaching. Where do you get off? Where we set the standards of worship, where we decide who can worship and who can't. And you come in and healing people and telling them they're able to worship and, and enabling Gentiles to come and to worship. Who do you think you are? That's our job, right? So you might have it in your mind that this is the picture of, uh, of, that, of the mom, and she's got the back-talking child, right? She's got the, 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 tall, the child that, that's getting a little bit too big for his britches, right? And so she looks back to the back-talking child. She says, who do you think you are? Who do you think you're talking to, right? Or, or maybe the supervisor who's talking to his subordinate, and the subordinate has maybe been less than subordinate, right? Like dealing with some insubordination, and the supervisor looks back and says, hey, son, you need to stay in your lane, right? Like, like know your place, know your role. It's exactly what we're seeing here. In the temple complex, the, 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 the leaders are coming to Jesus and saying, hey, hey, son, you need to stay in your lane. Who do you think you are? Who is it that you think you're talking to? Whose turf do you think you're on? Over in Galilee, we didn't like you over there, but here in Jerusalem, we operate by a whole different set of standards. We operate by a whole different set of rules. You're in the temple. You're in our house. You're on our property. You're on our turf. By just using the word authority, by highlighting that word, Matthew's pointing something out to us. You see, <clears throat> throughout Matthew, he has pointed out to us that Jesus operates on an authority unlike any man that, that has ever walked. In Matthew chapter 7, he differentiates between the authority that Jesus speaks with. He uses the very same word, and he differentiates between the authority that Jesus teaches and preaches with from that of the scribes. And he says, man, everywhere Jesus goes, people want to listen to him. Crowds gather to him because he preaches with the authority of God. He teaches with the authority of God. You go to Matthew chapter 9. The word comes up again. The, a group of friends, they take their friend who is paralyzed, been paralyzed all of his life, and they lower him through a hole in the roof, and they lower him right to the very feet of Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man, and he says, Son, your sins have been forgiven. All those in attendance are taken back, because only God can forgive sins. And they believe that Jesus is equating himself with God and is blaspheming against God. And they begin to wag their fingers and they begin to say, how can you prove that? We ought to have you executed for saying that you can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And you can't prove that you forgive something that we can't see. And Jesus looks back at them. And he says, oh, what is more difficult? To forgive sins? Or to forgive paralysis, or to heal paralysis. And he says, so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. He says, son, take up your mat and walk. And the paralyzed man gets up and he walks out of that room. One chapter later in Matthew chapter 10, the word comes up again. Jesus is going to send out his disciples as sheep among wolves. He's going to send them out with his message, a message of the kingdom coming. They're going to go and they're going to do mighty works in his name. And he says, I am going to give you authority over the, those who are oppressed by demons. I'm going to give you authority over spiritual things. I'm going to delegate some of my authority to you so that people will recognize that you are my disciples going in my name. Matthew chapter 28, when it gets to us, you know what he says he sends us out? 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So what is he saying here? When Matthew uses this word here, not to talk about Jesus' authority, but to talk about the scribes, to talk about the chief priests, they're questioning his authority. It's apparent to everyone. It's obvious to everyone. It's clear to the crowds. It's clear to the disciples. And yet here are the scribes and here are the priests, the very men of God. And they don't see it. They don't see it. It is to show how hardened their hearts are, how darkened their eyes are, how plugged their ears have become. You see, what's interesting about the question that these men ask of, who do you think you are? That's the very same question that our culture asks of Jesus, isn't it? It's the very same question our culture asks. Our culture comes to Jesus and they ask, who is it that you think you are? To say that you are the only God. To say that you are the God that is greater than all the other gods. Who is it that you think you are? To say that you are the only way to heaven. To say that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Who is it that you say that you are? Who do you think you are? To say that everybody else should bow down and worship you. What kind of narcissist are you? Who do you think you are to say that you are the only hope of man? Who do you think you are to say that we need your forgiveness? Who do you think you are that we need your grace and your mercy? Who do you think you are to say that we need your help at all? I'm my own man. I'm my own person. I'll make my own decisions. Who do you think you are? You see, the, the condition of the sinful man is that sinners rebel against all authority and all rule except self-authority and self-rule. I have the sweetest, most loving five-year-old girl in my house. Some of y'all have met her. I'm telling you, that little girl has taught me more about love than any human being I've ever known in my life. She, has, she is filled with love and kindness. Like, I, I, it makes me envious to see how she thinks of other people. But can I tell you something? She's a rebel. <laughs> She's got a rebellious spirit. She's disobedient. She's not a bad kid. She's just a sinner. She's got this tent set up in her, ha- in, her, in her room, right? And we've been discovering, like, the last few weeks, she's waking up and she's just sleepy. We're like, man, she must be, like, growing or something, you know? You, you, you don't even think. And then all of a sudden we realize toys are moved in the, when, we wake, when we get up in the morning. And she's been getting up in the middle of the night and playing. And so the other night, Megan goes and she tucks her in. She prays with her. She says to her and says, now listen, listen. We're going to let you sleep right here in the tent. She likes to sleep in the tent. Like, that's a big deal. And that's not, I mean, we don't care where she, you know, like, she's whatever, you know. Like, as long as she's not in my bed, I don't care where else in the house she sleeps. You know what I'm saying? She can sleep on the roof. I don't care as long as she's not in my bed. So she's in her, she's in her tent living the dream. And Megan tucks her in. And she says, listen, sweetheart, so that you feel good in the morning, don't get up and, and play. Okay, mommy. Yeah, I won't. I love you, mommy. I mean, you know how she does. You have to beautiful blue eyes just kissing on mom love you mom out of the corner of my eye man I'm reading my book you know going through the thing at night and out of the corner of my eye I see this little flash across because <laughs> her, her room's right there and Megan goes in there and she's like honey what are you doing so mom I was just playing a little bit 
You just said you wouldn't. You literally just said it. I've got to spank you now. You know, like, I don't even want to. I'm not even a spanking mood. You know? You ever just get up, like, you find this in your job, right? Like, who's ever your boss is, some reason you just don't like them. You have issues with every boss you've ever had? Because sinners have trouble with authority. Sinners have trouble with rule. All sinners have trouble with authority and rule except for self-authority and self-rule. We have difficulty with that. Anybody who wants to tell us anything about what we should do and who we should be and where we should go, we look at them and we think, who do you think you are? But can I tell you something, brothers and sisters? If you want hope for yourself and you want grace for yourself, and you want mercy for yourself, and you want joy for yourself, and you want life for yourself, you're going to have to get over yourself. You're going to have to get over yourself. You're going to have to realize that you don't have the answers. You're going to have to realize that you have brought offense to a mighty and infinite God, but that that God loved you enough to send his only son to come and courageously lay down his life for you. And Christian, this doesn't end at salvation. I bet what you have found is that all of your issues with authority didn't go away with momentary repentance. No, brothers and sisters, daily, moment by moment, we bring ourselves under the surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And in bringing ourselves into the, under the surrender of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we bring ourselves under surrender to all of the authorities that he has placed over us in our lives. So that we don't look at Christ and say, who do you think we, you are? So that we don't look at our employer and say, who do you think we are, you are? We don't look at our church and say, who do you think you are? And by demonstrating that, do you know what we do to the world? We bear witness to the world. We bear witness to the world of what it looks like, the power of living a surrendered life. I wonder if the world has no concept of surrender because the world has never seen surrender and submission in the life of the church. So Jesus responds, right? Jesus responds, and Jesus responds brilliantly. He responds by, in, in a way that would have been typical of a rabbi of his day. It's a way that, that would be odd to us. It almost sounds like jeopardy to us, right? Like he responds to a question with a question, right? Like, like what is John the Baptist? Um, he, he, he comes in, and, he, and, he, and, and he, they, they've asked him this question. And, and you can t history kind of tells us that the, the temple leaders have, have conspired on this for a little while. They've thought on this for a minute, okay? They didn't just come up with this on the, flying by the seat of their pants. And so they come up with what they think is the perfect question, and Jesus comes back, and he says, well, let me ask a question first. If you answer my question, I'll answer yours. Now, Jesus is not being evasive here. Jesus is not being underhanded. Jesus is not being cowardly. This is uh, a common uh, rabbinical technique of Jesus' day. But Jesus' question is so brilliant that in his question, he will reveal both his authority and their hypocrisy. In his question, he will reveal both his authority and their hypocrisy. Because if they answer his question properly, if they answer his question rightly, then they will see where his authority has come from. But if they answer their, his question wrongly, then they will reveal their own hypocrisy, right? 
And of course, we know the answer to that. So Jesus asked the question about John the Baptist. He says, okay, so, so where did John, the, where did the authority of John the Baptist's uh, baptism come from? And, and the unique thing, R.C. Sproul pointed something out to me that I did not realize uh, until this week, is that most likely at the time of, of Jesus' ministry here, John the Baptist is probably still more popular and more prominent than Jesus. That because there had been 400 years of silence with no prophet of God, that the people had long anticipated the prophet of Elijah that Malachi had prophesied about at the end of the quiet period, of the silent period. And then when, uh, when John the Baptist comes onto the scene, he is widely accepted by the Jewish people as being the Elijah promised by Malachi. And so huge crowds of people, the Jews widely accepted him. They would go out to the wilderness and they would take part in this baptism, and they would listen to John preach. We know that the Pharisees went, and that the priests went, and that the temple leaders did go, but the Bible tells us that even though they went, they did not accept the message of John. They did not embrace John. They did not acknowledge John, that though the crowds and the genuine, general, general population accepted John, the leaders did not. And so Jesus has them pinned down here. Because remember that that day, there's a huge crowd there and they're listening to what, what this in exchange between the leaders and Jesus. And so the crowd is there and they all believe that John is in fact the prophet of God. They believe rightly that he is the one that Malachi had predicted would come as the Elijah. He is the one that would be the forerunner of the Christ. But the temple leaders didn't believe that. The scribes and the chief priests, they did not believe that. And so they're left in a quandary. What do we say? What do we do? And Jesus is using John because he's pointing out the wickedness of their hearts. You see, the, the temple leaders painted themselves as men who loved God. They painted themselves as men who wanted God. They painted themselves as men who loved the Word of God, who studied the Word of God. But who was John? John was the one that was promised by the Word of God, prophesied by the prophet of God, come in the way of God, and they rejected him. Who was Christ? Christ was the one that if they would have listened to John, John pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. I baptize with water. He baptizes with spirit and with fire. He was the one that had been promised for thousands of years by all of the prophets, the one all of the Old Testament had given witness to. He was the one, Emmanuel, God with us. You had the Holy of Holies in the middle of the temple. God with us, the Son of God in the outer courts of of the temple that day and they rejected him. So here were men who said, we want God. We want God with all of our hearts. We want the word of God with all of our minds. We devote all of our bodies to the Lord. We will fast. We will pray. We will do all that God has done. We will offer all of the sacrifices to God. But what Jesus showed with this simple question was that even though they read the word of God, it didn't bring them closer to the Lord, but farther. That even though they went to the church, the church didn't bring them closer to God, but farther. That even though they were religious, their religion didn't bring them closer to God, but farther. They pretended to want God. They didn't want God. They pretended. 
You know, brothers and sisters, I believe cultural Christianity is having the same effect on jovial, likable, hospitable Southerners today. Yes. You get on social media, you get on Facebook, and what do you see? You see laments. Oh Lord, we have taken prayer out of our schools. You see Bible verses plastered everywhere. You see people lamenting the debauchery of our government. Prayer isn't in our homes. And I'm highly skeptical as to whether or not we actually love the Bible and read the Bible and delight in the Bible and memorize the Bible and study the Bible. Our churches are half empty and dying and closing. With our mouths, we say, oh, we want God. We want God. God is the answer. God is number one. God is the best. Our football coaches all say, God is the number one priority, but you better be here on Sunday. Oh, we say we want God, but church, are we pretending? Are we pretending? You see, I think there's a lot of comparisons to be made with the Bible Belt South and the temple in Jesus' day. I had the privilege of preaching a conference with Scott Dawson last year. And I heard him give this illustration of the gospel in the Bible Belt South. He says, you know, you go get a flu shot, right? He said he was talking to his doctor about getting a flu shot. And you know what happens when you get a flu shot? When you, when you get a vaccination really of any, any type? You know what they give you? The flu, right? Like, that's a surreal experience. You, you go to the doctor and say, hey, doctor, would you give me the flu? I'd really like the flu today. But what do they do? They give you just enough flu so that you can develop an immunity to it, right? So that your body can build up its defense mechanism, so that your, your body can, can harden itself to the flu, so that you can be vaccinated to the point that you won't become infected. You know, brothers and sisters, I think in our community and in communities across our state and across the southeast just like ours, we've got just enough the gospel that we're vaccinated but not infected. We're vaccinated but not infected. We know just enough of the Bible to glaze over and not hear the stories again. We know just enough of the gospel so that our hearts can harden up and we don't have to hear the Jesus jumbo again. We know just enough about forgiveness to feel like we're let off the hook about being and pursuing and following after the Lord Jesus. But we have no gospel infection. We have no hunger or thirst for righteousness. No desire to pursue after the living God. No, we want a church that will cater to us. We want a Christianity that is, that is convenient and consumeristic and easy. We want something that is less than going to the temple on the day of your death and preaching and teaching in the hardest of hearts. No, we want something that is cheaper and easier. We want to pretend like we want God. Brothers and sisters, do you want God or are you just pretending? Do you want God or are you just pretending? Are you infected with the gospel or are you just vaccinated? So they have this great meeting of the minds among the temple leaders that day. 
And they come back with this great PR response, right? The spin doctors have all went to work and they come back with the greatest response that they can think of. We don't know. We don't know. You can imagine all of the, the craftsmanship that went into that wondrous statement. We don't know. I want you to contrast the, the, the cowardice of the temple leaders with the courage of Christ. Jesus knows they are against him. And he goes to the temple and he preaches and he teaches anyway. The, the, the temple leaders, they fear the crowd. They don't say what they mean. They don't say what they want. They say what was easy and convenient to them. In other words, for the temple leaders that day, truth was relative. Truth was relative. John Piper says that truth is relative in every culture of every time, not just in ours. But brothers and sisters, doesn't that sound especially applicable today? That is the circumstance of that day. It was most appropriate and it was most relative, most beneficial for them to say, we don't know. But by Friday night, it will be most beneficial for them to say that he is of earth, that his authority came from within himself and is of earth, not of heaven, and that he is blaspheming against God. And so crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. We live in a day in which my truth can be my truth and your truth can be your truth, that what I believe today might change tomorrow and it might be different by Friday and it might be tr different again next week. But as D.A. Carson says, relative truth is treason against God. Relative truth is treason against God because relative truth means that there is no absolute truth and it means that there is no absolute God and it means that there is no absolute source of truth. And what you'll find in our day is the same thing that you found in Jesus' day. That wherever there is relative truth, you will find cowardice and hopelessness. Cowardice, because the truth is always changing. Hopelessness, because it has no authority. But wherever there is absolute truth... But wherever the gospel can be depended upon, wherever it is unwavering, wherever the church is courageous, wherever the mission of Jesus is held fast to, wherever the Bible is inerrant and all-sufficient, that is a place where there is courage and joy and hope because the message does not change and the power does not shake. And so church, we stand today in a relative age as a courageous church because we can stand on the authority of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. In Christ alone we stand. Let's pray together.